What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to part two of my podcast with the legendary record producer, Bob Ezra. Bob, good to have you back. Thank you. It's very good to be here. Okay, let's delve into some of your work that we didn't get to last time. Now, you were consistently involved with Alice Cooper, but you did not do Muscle of Love. Why? Uh, there was a point at which the band was starting to flex their muscles, meaning the ins- the, the instrumental band within the, the Alice Cooper group. Um, they wanted more recognition. They wanted more respect. They felt like I was too sort of in charge of that side of things. And I think that there was also uh, some disagreement amongst the different factions about what they were going to do as their next step. Anyway, it was just not comfortable for everybody. And it was clear to me on the first day of rehearsal that some people in the room were not happy to see me. And that happens, you know, in life, sometimes that happens. By the end of the day, I just realized that this was not going to be a happy experience. And um, I took Alice aside and said, uh, look, I, I, I can't do this. And I called Jack Douglas, who had been working for me and doing some production for me. And I uh, asked my my then partner, ex, my, who used to be my boss, Jack Richardson, I asked him um, if he and Jack Douglas together would take over the project. I knew between the two of them, there would be a continuity there and uh, a comfort factor for the band. So they said yes, and I think uh, they did a really good job. Now the band broke up slightly thereafter. Did you foresee that happening? Yeah, I sort of did. I, you know, I did. I didn't really, I didn't have anything to do with it. I didn't talk to anybody about that. But I did say to Shep and to Alice that, you know, if they do decide to go out on their own, that they should call me. I'd be very happy to come back. So what was the process? Ultimately, Alice Cooper went solo, but he was identified with the name of the band at that point. Uh, How did that come together that you went back to work with Alice? 
Well, let's be clear about something. When the when the band formed, um, you know, it was it was obvious to to Shep, um, and it was suggested by Pat Kingsley, one of the greatest PR people in in the world. Uh, that you couldn't have a band called Alice Cooper without having someone in the band called Alice Cooper. So uh, Vincent Fernier got selected. He was the lead singer after all, and he literally changed his name legally and, and went through all that process to become Alice Cooper. He was also the guy then that spoke on behalf of the band. So at seven in the morning where everybody else was sleeping off the gig of the night before, he's on the phone with Match Paris or some other, you know, uh, periodical somewhere. He's doing all this spokesman stuff. He's he's working double duty. So by the time it came to uh, determining where the band was going to go, it was clear that, you know, Alice Cooper going off on his own would be Alice Cooper and the rest of the band would have to find um, a different name. Do you believe there was resentment from the rest of the band that he went on using the name? You know, I think... You know, maybe at the at the time there might have been, but but nobody could. You know, you 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 can't deny a person the right to work under their own name. That's just like that's just common sense. So I, you know, resentment that he stayed Alice Cooper. I don't think so. I, there may have been some resentment about, um, you know, Shep staying with him and me going back and the you know sort of um, leaving them out there on their own. And and I can I can understand that. Since then, happily, everybody has um, remained friends, continue to work together. We just did um, some sessions in Phoenix with the original guys and Alice, and um, we all talk to each other all the time. Dennis has written songs on Alice's current uh, records and stuff, so all is well. Okay, so how does the process go down in a more granular fashion in terms of the story that you get back to work with Alice? Um, the it's a very simple one that that um, uh, they have to do a project, a solo project, and Shep has um, uh, a clause in his contract in the Alice Cooper contract that allows them to do uh, a soundtrack album for a different label than Warner Brothers. So they go to a sister label so as to keep peace in the family. They go to Atlantic Records. And then Shep calls me up and says, you know, we're going to do it again. Would you like to work with Alice? And oh, by the way, we need a soundtrack, meaning we have to come up with an idea for a movie or, um, or a TV show. So Alice and I got together and... Um, Interestingly, so we get together, we start talking about this and we came up, we, we decided to come up with our own story. So we come up with a storyline where this rock star named Steven something, he uh, and his mistress are in a private plane somewhere over the Rockies and the plane goes down. He disappears, she disappears. 28 days later, he uh, surfaces alone and he's fine and he looks fine. The suggestion, you know, is that something untoward may have happened there during that 28 days. And, and he comes back and now he's rock star by day and evening and by night he's a, a vampire and a killer. And so that was the idea. Anyway, we came up with this thing, Welcome to My Nightmare. And, um, and Shep introduced us to a, a movie director uh, named Denny Mann 
who would who would have been the director of this project if it had all sort of worked out. Alice and I went to Vancouver, BC uh, to meet with Denny Mann on a ship off the coast of Vancouver where he was shooting a movie featuring um, uh, Ian McShane, um, uh, Donald Pleasance, and Vincent Price. Wow. And Yvette Mimieux, who happened to be my wet dream, right? right. So, so there we were on shipboard, you know, and I was standing next to uh, Mr. Price. He pulled out a cigar, uh, uh, Monte Cristo, which I was smoking in those days. I loved Monte Cristos. And I just said, look, I'm, I know this is very forward, but would you happen to have one more of those? And he was, suddenly we were like cigar buddies, you know, how cigar buddies are. And, um, and so we started talking and I'm listening to that voice and I just said to him, Mr. Price, how would you like to make your rock and roll debut? And, uh, and he's, he looked at me like it was some kind of joke, but then he said, sure. So I said, well, we'll stay in touch. And of course, there was no movie. We came up with an idea for a television special uh, for ABC Wide World of Entertainment. This was back when they, they had ABC Wide World of Sports, the agony of defeat and the ecstasy of victory or whatever it was, right? And then they decided, well, we're, you know, this is working so well for sports, we're going to do it for entertainment. So they, they set up this slot, and I believe we were the first ones with this project called Welcome to My Nightmare, which is its own show all by itself, so we should move on from this. But let me just tell you that there has never been a three-ring circus like that whole experience in my entire life, and someday we'll talk all about it. Okay, meanwhile, you work with KISS, making what many people believe is their best album, Destroyer. Tell us the story of that. Well, you know, the the KISS situation was really interesting. I I always had a published phone number in Toronto when I was when I was living in Toronto. And uh, there were fans who used to call me and just talk to me about stuff. There was this one kid, Mike Longmans, who called me up. He was 16 years old and he said, um, there's this band that that need you, man. They really need you. You need to work with this band. They're called KISS. I didn't I had never heard of them. Um, but he was adamant about it. So I started looking them up and, and listening to music and stuff. And then literally like three days later, I was at city TV, uh, downtown Toronto doing an interview for an artist that I had signed to my label. So I was going up the stairs to the TV studio. And as I was going up, the members of kiss were coming down from just having done their, um, interview in may in makeup full makeup full costume they were coming <laughs> clumping down those stairs it was like a herd of buffalo you know clunk, clunk. and as they got close to me they were like giants they were the, these monstrous guys you know and and uh paul stanley was in the lead so i stopped paul and said hi um i'm bob ezrin and he said oh we know who you are and i said well that's good because now i know who you are i said are you guys happy with your records and he said yeah why <laughs> you know, like, what do you mean? I mean, and I just said, well, you know, I don't mean anything. I'm just saying if at any point you're not, um, I'd be really interested in talking to you about working together. And that was that. I didn't speak to anybody after that. And then some months later, I got a call from uh, Bill Coyne, Gee, The manager. The manager of the band saying, you know, the band would very much like to meet with you. And first we wanted, we wanted you to go see them play live. 
So I did. I went to uh, Michigan. Um, I think it was Ann Arbor, uh, you know, and uh, they were playing in an arena stand, you know, you know, just general standing, not even seating. And the place, the place was pretty full. There were about 9,000 people in the arena and they were all 15 year old pimply boys, which to me looked like a massive opportunity because I was thinking like, if they do this well with nothing but pimply boys, imagine if we could just expand the platform and, and, um, and attract a larger audience. And because I, I, while I was watching them, like I was thinking, you know what, these guys are actually really good, and they're and they're sexy too in a in a strange way. And yet they're they're just playing this kind of you know hard drinking, hard partying, macho thing for the sake of fifteen year olds. That if I could just get them to expand their repertoire a bit, that we might be able to get to a larger audience. Okay, and so you see them. And how do you seal the deal? And then what's the next step in making the record? So we go to a we go to a a, a Middle Eastern restaurant in New York City, ch- chosen by Gene Simmons, and we have the I have hummus for the first time, and just love it. And then we have this conversation where I tell them, I remind them of the movie The Wild One, which to all your listeners is probably way too long ago, but it was a, a biker movie that had legendary. Marlon Brando, the leader of one bike gang, and Lee Marvin, the leader of the other. Marlon Brando's gang were bad, but Lee Marvin's gang was really bad. And they descended on this little town, and and they were just going to destroy the place. But sure enough, there was one girl whose heart was pure, who believed that she could could change and save uh, Marlon Brando. So she and Marlon Brando's name was Johnny in in the movie. So she decided that she was going to she was going to cure Johnny with love in a sense. So she and Johnny fall into love, and 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 then of uh, of course what happens is Johnny goes from zero to hero, and he and his guys save the town. So I just said to them like, right now you guys are Lee Marvin. This is not gonna. I mean, it's cool to be bad, but. I want you to be bad, but sexy too. And I think that it would be great if you were bad and and every girl in the world thought they could fix you. That to me would be, that would be genius. So they love that idea, you know, and, and I said, well, you know, let's get to work. It's going to be the material to start off with. We're going to have to have songs that do that for us. And, um, and we're going to have to make a really good record. I think the meeting was terrific because... You know, Gene and Paul and I are, you know, we're all Jewish boys who grew up um, with dreams of blondes and uh, envy of uh, of our Protestant, our white Anglo-Saxon Protestant friends, you know. So we had a common platform. We knew where we were coming from. And, and the other guys were, you know, they were good humored. And I mean, I just found the whole band really kind of fun to work with. Okay. So none of the songs were written prior to your involvement? There were p- bits and pieces because they, they knew that they were going to start up again. Okay, there were a couple of legendary Kiss songs. First, Detroit Rock City. What's the story? How does that come together? Let's, let me ask you this. You send them off to Woodshed. When you get back together with them, to what degree are the songs complete? Well, I didn't send them anywhere. They'd already started to work on material for the album. The next step really was for me to go to each of them individually and sit and listen through their like mountains of cassette tapes and, 
and little bits and pieces to see what we liked and what sort of fit this, the new mission, right? So um, uh, we went through a lot of stuff and there were some really good, you know, there were great riffs and there were not so great riffs, and, um, but there was enough to get us started. And so, so once, once, I, once I felt like we had the pieces that we needed, then um, we got together and started to really craft them into songs. Now, most of the writing, 99% of the writing for the album was um, Gene and Paul, sometimes separately, sometimes together. And there was the one obligatory um, song that, that, that had to come from uh, Peter Chris. And I don't know what happened about the Ace song. There should have been one. But anyway, so we got together. We had these little bits and pieces. And uh, sometimes it would just be me and one of them. And sometimes it would be the three of us. A lot of the time we went, uh, by this time I was living in New York, we came to my apartment and sat at my piano uh, which has a lot to do with some of the arrangement stuff, like the um, shout it, shout it out loud, dun, 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 do, da, da, dun, dun. That's like a left-hand piano thing. And the the riff for Detroit Rock City, um, that's, and that's pure guitar and pure cock and balls. It's just a really amazing riff. And uh, I, I don't, uh, you know, honestly, I don't know how it turned from just being like a regular rock song into being this rock and roll saga. But I do know that all of us were theatrical. We were all looking for something more than just, you know, who wants to party and who wants to drink a lot for this record. So we started telling a story and, and, um, and then the making of, the, of that record was really exciting, too, because we were experimenting with new technology and we were adding sound effects. Many people don't know this, but the entire front of that song was uh, binaurally recorded. It was me wearing a binaural head microphone. And that was me in the car. That's me doing the dishes and that's, you know, and humming as the kid, right? And, uh, but it's in binaural. So if you put on headphones, it's like 360, uh, 360 degree sound and you're right there in the center of it. So where was it cut? It was cut at the record plant in New York City on 44th Street West. My favorite all-time uh, rock and roll studio and... Um, you know, sadly, uh, it doesn't exist anymore. It was an amazing place where great adventures happened and lots of magic was, was made. For getting the adventures and getting to the sound, how important is a specific studio to you? Um, well, it, it, there are certain things that are important and then you can find the studio that fits. I, you know, I don't want I, I to be that guy who can only paint on Tuesday afternoons. You know, I, I basically, you know, my mantra is basically, you know, give me a... Uh, you know, give me a cell phone and a flashlight and I'll put, I'll, I'll give you a record to show, you know? So it's, I, I can basically make records anyway. That is the truth. But I, but I do want uh, where possible to have an optimum circumstance for the band because the, at the end of the day, their performance in that studio depends a lot on how they feel and on, on, um, what the studio does to inspire them, make them comfortable, bring out better performances in them. So in that sense, it's very important. For a band like KISS, it was very important that they be in the room together. That, that's massive. Um, they needed to see each other and they needed to 
play off of each other's excitement as things as interesting things were happening. But by the same token, we had to keep the drums as separate as possible so that we could go back and um, redo some parts if, if necessary, or we could actually edit from one section to another into the drum tracks without picking up the wrong leakage from the room. So the record plant Studio A was perfect because they had this massive drum booth you could put Peter Chris in. It was only open at eyesight level, so he could see us all, we could see him, but um, most of the sound from the room was prevented from getting into the mics of his drums. That gave me a tremendous amount of flexibility. Okay. Is there a specific board you like to use, specific uh, mixing monitors? No. Really? How about engineer? No. Wow. Well, let, okay, let me, let me just, you know, that's, that's a pretty facile answer. There are people I love to work with. Um, and, you know, in the last little while, I've done a lot of work with Justin Cordelou in uh, Nashville. He's really good, really fast. And, um, and then, you know, I have some younger engineers that I like to work with. I like to bring along to, to sort of learn my system and be um, uh, responsive to me on a kind of more natural level. And so there's, uh, I've got Julian Shank in Nashville as well. And uh, then there's Jill Zimmerman in Toronto, who's a young engineer from Germany that's moved to Canada. He's very talented, very smart. Um, and I work with Brian Monkars in Canada, who is a, actually, a, you know, a fully fledged producer, but, you know, sometimes does some mixing and engineering for me. And then in, in England, where I do a lot of work, um, it, the, the engineer depends on um, the, the job. But for all of the Pink Floyd stuff, all the things that I did in Pink Floyd land, it was Andrew Jackson, who is just phenomenal incredibly musical and i have you know i mean there's a long list so okay so tell us the story of the so now am i going to piss off the people i didn't put on no no you mentioned so many people that's why i I said no it's easier you know but but you know there's lots of really good people that's the point lots but the more interesting thing is that you don't require you don't have the right hand person you must use no no, I, you know, because listen, I've been doing this for a long, long time. And, and also, you know, when I was starting out, like we were, we were breaking new ground. I didn't really want somebody that only knew one way of doing things. Brian Christian was a fantastic partner at that time as an engineer because he knew Jack, Jack's methodology, but he was also smart enough and had enough experience to be able to adapt to me and to start Um, learning my way of doing things and helping me with developing my way of doing things. So did um, Shelly Yakis, you know, from, from the record plant and Roy Sakala, who, you know, the great late, the late great Roy Sakala, who had a tremendous amount to, uh, uh, to do with my matriculation. And, and at the very, very beginning, there was Phil Ramone, as I think I mentioned earlier, right. and David, David Green. So I've, you know, I've gone to school with some really, really good people. I've learned a lot. I've also learned that if you push the wrong button, nothing explodes. You don't die. It's amazing. So, you know, you can be afraid of doing stuff, but sometimes you just got to push. And if it sounds good, you go, okay, that's what I wanted. You know, and if it sounds shitty, you go, oh, whoops. (laughs) Okay. So tell us about the creation of Beth. 
Um, we, you know, we had to have we had to have a Peter Chris song to keep peace in the family, and um, he and Stan Pendridge had come up with a kind of um, bouncy little thing called Beck, B E C K, and um, and it was it was sort of. It, it was a little bit like the cock and balls um, approach of earlier Kiss. It was just kind of arrogant and sort of dismissive of the girl and basically saying, you know, you're not that important. I got, I got guys to hang out with. We're going to go play music and that. But there was a really, there was, there was a kernel of something there that I really loved. And um, it just that, you know, Beck, theirs was Beck, I hear you calling, but I can't come home right now. That just exploded in my brain. So I asked, I said to Peter, can I take that home and and play with it a little bit? And he was very gracious and said, sure. So I went home and I just closed my eyes and thought about it. And to me, it was, well, first of all, I don't know if Beck is Jeff Beck or Rebecca or whatever. It's confusing. So I'm going to go with Beth because that's a gentle, soft, beautiful name. And and when the guy calls her up and he's saying he can't come home right now, I don't want it to be because she's um, not important to him. I want it to be because his heart is broken. I want it to be because home is nowhere to be anymore. And now and here comes our here comes our wild one moment, our Johnny moment. I want the nasty rock and roll guy to break down in tears in front of all the girls of the world and say, you know, I didn't go home because I didn't feel loved anymore. So that they would wrap him in their arms and love him to death. So you go back and you show it to the band, what especially Chris, what does he say? I honestly don't remember whether it was instantly accepted or not. I mean, I think I think um, I think Paul and Gene for sure recognized that it was a better version. Um, I'm not sure that anybody paid it as much attention as I did at the time, but you know, as it as it developed, it got you know it became clearer and clearer that this there was something really special about this song. Okay, the album comes out and it's a monstrous success. What is the band's reaction to this success, and to what degree do they give kudos to you? Okay. Well, first of all, the album gets reviewed in the long lead press. So, and this is just before it's released, and an article comes out, I don't remember if it's Rolling Stone or Record World or somewhere, and this guy writes an article that basically says that I have destroyed Kiss, <laughs> and, that, and that I have, you know, I've... I've uh, feminized them and basically turned them into an Anne Margaret style. They, yeah, he literally said, you know, well, you know, adding Anne Margaret horns to my favorite band. And he says he closes the article with the line, I have a mind to go to Toronto and punch Bob Ezrin in the nose on behalf of Kiss fans. That every, I remember everywhere. reading. That Do you I remember, remember that? reading. Yeah. I, you know, and um, I sent him a funny response, but, you know, we, we don't need that now. But... Um, that got everybody nuts. The band got crazy. Um, management got crazy. And they started to wonder if, oh, my God, you know, did we actually make a huge mistake here? And then I believe that that Guy uh, Billacoin, the manager, maybe he was hearing voices from elsewhere. You know, there's always other voices in other rooms, as we say. There's always critics. Everybody wants to tell you that what you just did would have been better if only they had done it. And so somebody must have been saying, you know, this is really going to be a problem for you guys. And I blithely go off on vacation with my sons 
and I have, a, I have an answering service in New York. This is in the days when there were no machines. There were little ladies that, that are sitting on a switchboard in New York City that were like my mom. You know, they used to, when I would stay out too late, they would go, where were you? What were you doing? You know, so I get back. I get back from two weeks of vacation and I call my answering service because then no cell phone, you know, like nobody could reach you. That's fine. That was just fine. That was the idea. So I get home, I check on, on my service for messages, and the, the, you know, the lady says, where have you been? Mr. Douglas has been calling you and calling you, and he seems very, very upset. You should call him right away. So, so I thought that there was like some health issue or something terrible that had happened. I called Jack right away, and he was, he was struggling with his, with his words because he just he was so uncomfortable saying to me what he had to say and he prefaced it by saying look i won't do this if you don't want me to but he had gotten a call from kiss management asking if he would do the next kiss record we weren't even out yet or maybe we had just come out and clearly, it was, um, you know, so the opposite of a, vote, of a vote of confidence or any kind of thanks or any recognition of my, you know, it's exactly the opposite of what you're asking. Right. And, and, and I just, like, I was, like, I sat back in my chair going, wait, 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 say this again. We just finished an album. Like, what are you saying? And he said, well, you know. Bill had called him, and the band was very unhappy with the results, and they would really like to um, explore working with Jack. Now, by that time, I think he had done the first uh, Aerosmith record. In fact, I know he had. Um, uh, his first record with Aerosmith, not their first record. So, you know, I was like, I was, at, I was just in shock. And I just said to Jack, you know what? Fuck them. If that's the reaction after all that work and all the really cool stuff that's on that record and all the time we spent together and the friendship I thought we had, if that's it, they call around behind my back and ask my own, um, you know, I don't want to say protege, but, you know, that it, in a sense he was, you know, my own guy, if he wants to replace me, that is just so... Um, insulting and uh and dis, dis you know it just, it just blew my mind so i just basically said to him you know what call him back and tell him you'll do it and while you're at it tell tell bill a coin to go fuck himself and i didn't speak to them for a long time thereafter you know they didn't reach out um i, I don't really know how it happened i i did stay in touch with um I did stay in touch with Gene and uh, occasionally, but not very often. And Paul lived just across the street from me in New York. That was even worse. You know, it was awkward. He lived directly across the street and, uh, you know, with his girlfriend at the time. And anyway, I don't really remember exactly how it, we got, how, how the conversation came up for bringing us back together. But I know that it was um, a long time thereafter years a few years thereafter okay but most people at this point believe destroyer is their best album in addition i believe it is their biggest seller it is yeah by a mile and so they and, never acknowledge that 
Well, no, they did after. They did later. You know, later, um, I, what they didn't acknowledge was that breakup. They didn't acknowledge the breakup and how improperly it went down. They didn't. Nobody called to apologize. And at the time, I was enough of a punk and young enough that to me that was like it was a matter of principle you know if they don't apologize i'm not going you know i'm not going to be the first one to say what the fuck happened you know so it took us a long time to get back together today if that kind of stuff happens to me i know to just pick up a phone and say you know are you sure about this do you really mean that um but i was young and brash and and you know listen that young, that brashness and that that youthful energy that had a lot to do with making that album what it is. Okay. Now these are tall guys and Gene Simmons, uh, only has one personality. We know we've both interacted with a lot of household names and usually it's a public face and the private face, but with Gene, what you see is what you get. So, well, you know what? I, I, I reject that. I, I think that for many people, what you see is what you get. But um, but I love Gene Simmons. I do. And by the way, I love Paul Stanley. And uh, uh, both of them are really, uh, they're deep guys. They're really deep. Now, with Gene, anytime he's in the company of somebody who's not in the inner circle, where he's completely comfortable, you're right. It's the Gene show, 24-7. So if I come with, to him with... Um, a friend, it's the Gene Show. He doesn't relax. He, he's he's on. He's the, he does his shtick. Okay, so... But you, let me tell you this. Okay. I want to tell you this. It's important because a lot of people think that about him. But when my son died, those two guys showed up at the funeral in public. And then they came to the Shiva house. And, and Gene and Shannon came came over to me and literally they put their arms around me and made a sandwich out of me. And they just held me. This is Gene Simmons. And I, and they held me and I cried there, you know, I stood there and cried, but I felt safe. I felt like people that I loved were protecting me, which is the idea of the Shiva, isn't it? In the first place. So there's a soft and there's a marshmallow loving, kind um, side to Gene, but he's developed this, you know, he's developed this uh, public persona, which, which is how he's made a living. So it's, for him, it's worked out really well. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. So, previously, you'd gone to see Lou Reed in the opening act with Genesis. You became infatuated with the band. And then you go on to work with Peter Gabriel. How do you get involved with Peter Gabriel, who has just left Genesis, and he's going to make his first solo album? So, um, it's interesting you ask, because um, I, I was talking to Tony Smith, and I said, was it you that reached out to me? Like, how did I get to work with Peter? And he said, yes, that, he, that it came from his office. Now, you know, why they asked for me, maybe it had to do with the Lou Reed record. I'm not entirely sure. But as, as I you may have told you before, maybe it's in the first half, I don't remember. But um, when, when I went to see Lou play for the first time at Massey Hall in Toronto, the opening act was Genesis. And I had said at the time, you know, boy, i I really want to work with that kid with the flower in his head, which was Peter Gabriel. And, um, and I became a little bit obsessed with uh, Genesis in general, but with him specifically. So when I got the call, when I got the call from London saying, um, you know, would you come over and meet with Peter? We want to talk to you about potentially working with him. I was like, yep, I'll leave tomorrow, you know? So, um, I got there and I and it was an amazing couple of days because it it included not just Peter who is a phenomenal guy like you want to talk about a dear friend um, this is somebody you know Peter and I have have remained close like family style friends all these years for a very very long time and yet we've only worked together just of you know on on a few things it's not a lot but um, but every time it's been very meaningful. So we get there and um, I meet with uh, Tony Smith, Gail Colson, who is the managing director of the label that, um, that Peter signed to, which is called Charisma Records. And, uh, and she's, she's Wasn't fantastic. it the flying Charisma label? Well, yeah, <laughs> right. originally. But then it just became Charisma. But right. you're right. Yeah. And, and uh, she's fantastic and, and uh, so on top of things, but really smart and, and, um, and, and very invested in Peter as an artist. And of course, Tony's his manager, so he is totally invested. So the three of us are talking about Peter and his career. Tony Stratton he, Smith. No, Tony Smith, manager. So those two are, and we're talking about career. But then I go and meet the owner of the label, Tony Stratton Smith, who is... A well, a beautifully dressed, incredibly articulate, 
wonderful English gay man with the 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 kind of verve that and and style that only the very wealthy English gay men could have. You know, and he was just an amazing character, and uh, and we we started up a friendship that that went on for a few years too. But. Uh, just spending time with him was such a trip. I loved it. Like every time I'd go back to London, I would just have lunch with him because I just love listening to him. And I love watching him. He was such a great show. Anyway, so from, and sadly, uh, he's not with us anymore. But uh, so I go from London to meet with Peter in Bath, which is where he, was, where he lived and where he's from. Um, and... Um, he picks me up, and uh, he's a very sweet, very shy, very kind of um, held back but gentle man. Um, and uh, and he tours me around Bath to show me where he where he came from. He's very proud of that place and its Roman roots and and the the kind of mystical connection it, that whole area has. Um, some people consider it, some, the, the Druids considered it to be the, the uh, mystical cent uh, center of the universe. So anyway, so we did a lot of that stuff. And as we were spending time doing that stuff, we were relaxing and we were coming down to being just two guys who were having a good conversation about stuff that we enjoyed. He saw that I was interested in the things he was interested in and that I knew a fair bit about him. And he was very happy to hear that uh, I saw that show, that tour, and that that's where I had made the determination that I wanted to do this. So we went to his house, uh, a modest house that he lived in with his wife, Jill, and his daughter, Anna, who I think was a toddler at the time. Uh, and he had a little upright piano in the front of the house, and we sat down there and started um, playing stuff. He started playing stuff to me that he was thinking about, that... that um, he wanted to put on his solo record. And we started talking about just sort of, you know, lofty um, conceptual stuff, you know, theatrical things like how would the show go? Which, which by the way, is, is something that I do love to put before uh, recording in many cases. So and I know I'm dealing with a theatrical artist. And since I come out of theater originally, um, I'd love to know what their vision is for the show. And how we can make an album that that fulfills that vision. So in Peter's case, you know, this is his big introduction. He's stepping out and he needs to be taken seriously. By the same token, he needs to show all the different sides of him that he didn't feel he was getting to express within the band. So we, so we listen to music. I hear lots of good stuff, but I hear lots of stuff that's not quite right yet. And he's not ready from my point of view. And, and I feel like also he's just beginning to get his hands around who he wants to be. And so I don't want to rush him. I tell the label and management, we're not ready to go in the studio. I don't want to go in the studio with him now. But what I would like is I would like him to come back to New York. I will rent him a place there. Um, and I would like him to spend um, a month in New York writing where I can watch and where I can influence um, he can come and use my piano in my apartment. It's perfectly safe. And, um, and so that was that. So we, we arranged a trip to go to bring Peter to New York for a month. So the apartment, dig this, the apartment I found for him 
belong to Garson Kanan and Ruth Gordon. Wow. Wow. Hollywood royalty. And uh, for anybody who doesn't know, people are listening. Ruth Gordon was the was the next the old next door neighbor in Rosemary's Baby, and Garson Kanan was one of the greatest screenwriters of all time. But she, of course, was Maud in Harold and Maud, and she was Maud in Harold and Maud. She's like she's legendary. So this was their this was their Chelsea apartment. It was a magnificent, small kind of rabbit warren of an apartment. And why they rented it out, I have no idea. But we went through Showbiz channels to find one. So that's what we got. And uh, Peter and Jill and Anna came to New York. They, they stayed there. Peter came to my house every day. And um, I had a split-level apartment. So I would go upstairs to the back to where my um, office was and work on other stuff. And I left Peter in the, in the living room with the grand piano with a cassette machine beside him. And every time I heard anything I loved, I would run out and go, record that, record that. We want to hear that again. And um, over that period of time, we developed a, um, a clear vision of what we were hoping to accomplish. We talked about the band we'd like to work with. We talked about sort of where to do it. We sort of laid out our, our master plan. And we amassed a body of material that I felt confident in. So then he went back to London to finish those songs. And the next time we met was in Toronto, where we decided to do the record at the Nimbus Studios called Soundstage. And I put together a band for him that was like the Dirty Dozen. It was a group of people that I had worked with on other things before and that I knew pretty well, along with a few people that came from Peter. Um, and uh, uh, I brought in, Tony Levin was my sort of go-to bass player at the time, Alan Schwartzberg, who was the drummer, Jimmy Malin, God rest him, who was a brilliant percussionist. But to say percussion is, is shortchanging him. He was like a soundscape artist with common you know, instruments and things. He was a genius. And, um, and I had Steve Hunter, the, you know, the brilliant Steve Hunter who has been on so many projects with me and has so much to do with, if I have a sound, a rock sound, so much to do with that sound. And, uh, and uh, Peter brought Larry Fast, who I was aware of, a great synthesizer, um, uh, he was he was an innovator, a synthesizer innovator, as well as a terrific musician. And um, and then he said, "May I please have one Brit?" I said, "I give you one Brit. You get one one push, right? You know, you get one Brit." Um, so he invited um, Robert Fripp. Thank you. Okay, so I said to him, "I'll give you one Brit." you got to push for one Brit. And he said, well, I'd like to bring Robert Fripp, which is not a punishment by any means. So there they were, you know, this group of people. And every day we started off in Jack Richardson's office where there was an upright piano. Peter would sit down. He would play this very complicated piece of music that he had finally uh, uh, cobbled together out of the pieces that we did in New York and that we had done some work on after. Um, and uh, and they were, uh, like, complicated. This was Prague with a capital Prague. <laughs> so this was like, and the guys in the band, like, a lot of them, were, they were just sitting there, their eyes rolling in their head, and, and they would ask him to, to like, uh, what was that thing in the, oh, you, can you play that again? You know, they were feverishly taking notes. Tony Levin, on the other hand, was reading a novel. <laughs> 
and and like by the first time through, he had it. He had clocked it, you know. Um, and then everybody, once they all knew the song and they knew what it comprised of, then we moved into the studio and, and parts were developed and assigned. In some cases, I had ideas. In some cases, we just made it up right there on the spot. So we would try stuff, you know, rule... Uh, um, so, you know, Peter loves rule sets, and so do I. They're, they're just, I don't mean as a, as a restriction, but as, you know, we like the five challenges, you know. So for Salisbury Hill, I took away Alan Schwartzberg's symbols. I just took them off the kit altogether. So, you know, even if he tried to hit one, he couldn't. And I gave him a, a shaker um, and put a, a, a tea towel over his snare drum to develop a certain sound and, and so on. And that, 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 kind of electronic drum sound that we had. We invented it right there on the spot. We, we, we decided it needed a name, so we called it a synthabam. And, and I just, I played that part. While Larry was playing um, the more orchestral sounds and things like that. And we cut that track live. We cut them all live. Okay, this was seen as a very innovative album. I know it was different in Canada, but Genesis was not that well known, such that when the first album came out, it was almost a debut like Genesis. And Genesis, of course, came out with their Minus Peter album at a similar... They came out with the previous one. I think Wind and Wuthering came out at that time. Yeah. So this was a wild album to listen to. As accessible as Salisbury Hill and Modern Love were, the Burgermeister and all this other stuff, it was like, you heard it, it was like, what is this? And that was all intentional. All intentional. Every little bit of it was intentional, including Excuse Me. You know, that song, Excuse Me, was a little ditty that Peter had written. Tony Levin said, you know, I'm in a barbershop quartet. He said, this kind of sounds like a barbershop quartet to me. And I go, that's genius. So we create a barbershop quartet out of the members of the band. I didn't hire other people. They all learned their parts. Tony helped to arrange this thing. In fact, you know, it was basically his chart on that. And, and also, I knew that Tony played tuba, had had played tuba in a symphony. So uh, we got a tuba. I hired a tuba. <laughs> and um, and I had Tony play the bass part on the tuba instead of on the bass. And anyway, you know, they loved doing it so much that we actually took the act on the road in Toronto in the sense that, like, literally, we went out on, 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 uh, Hazel, on Hazelton Avenue and, the, and sang it on the sidewalk just to see, you know, people would gather. And, uh, and the, the, um, the rap dinner, which, which I would usually do for projects like this, is just have a celebration and a rap dinner. It was such a great experience, and everybody had such a wonderful time that I took everybody out to a restaurant called Napoleon, which was very white tablecloth, very, you know, a very high-end Toronto restaurant. And, and, and we had bought uh, gifts for everybody in the band, which I brought out at a certain point during dinner. And, um, and everybody dressed up. Peter dressed up in a three-piece gray suit with a black shirt and black tie. And, oh, by the way, ball-bearing uh, contact lenses, So, which over which he wore dark glasses. And um, 
So, you know, we walked him into the restaurant and he had his dark glasses on and he and the, the waiters would shout at him because they thought he was blind, as people do, you know, for, for blind people. I never got that. <laughs> they would shout at him. And then at one point they asked him a question. He took his glasses off and, and was looking at them with literally ball-bearing eyes. And the guy that was taking our order... He like threw his pad and jumped back and 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 had to leave the room. He was so shocked. Anyway, it was a fun dinner. Everybody got something that was meaningful to them. Fripp got a pocket watch, a gold pocket watch, so he could stand on the table and say, and we would say, I say, Robert, what time is it? And he would take it out with a flourish and tell us the time. Um, and Steve Hunter got a... a an electric guitar. I, I don't remember what everybody else got, but I do remember that I bought uh, Tony a tuba. He hadn't played one in a long time. So he gets the tuba and I say, gentlemen, excuse me. They stood up, he played the tuba, and then they started singing, excuse me, as a barbershop quartet and the entire restaurant went crazy and applauded. They all gave us like a standing ovation. I said, well, we do two shows a night and three on Thursdays, you know, please come back. Anyway, it was just a great uh, time. The making of it, the ending of it, the camaraderie of it. And as you know, some of those people went on with Peter for years and years. Tony's still with him. Okay. And there was a famous story of Peter and the wall in the studio. Peter had to go up on the wall and you no, 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 not the wall, the pillar. Okay. Yeah. So the studio had two pillars in it that were uh, structural and they they were brick pillars. And we were doing modern love and I wasn't getting the performance that I thought he was capable of. And so I started almost jokingly saying to him, listen, okay, we got three more shots at this. And if you don't get it, you're going up the pillar and he would laugh and I would laugh. So, and then we tried again and I go, you know, that's not what I'm looking for. Two more and it's up the pillar and he would laugh and I would laugh. And then finally we got to no more. And I, I turned to Brian Christian, the engineer, who was a big guy, really big, like six foot three muscle bound, uh, linebacker kind of guy. We went outside into the studio. We, we had a ladder. Um, Brian uh, held him, Brian, took him up the ladder, held him in place while we gaffer taped under his armpits on the pillar. And then we took the ladder away. And there he was dangling by his armpits. And I said to the, to the assistant engineer, mic him. So they did. They put the mic up in front of his face. We went back in the control room and I said, okay, let's try it now. And, and uh, when it got to the chorus, he made he made Peter theater out of it. It was so wonderful to watch. He was flailing his arms and his legs and, and he and he was screaming, Oh, the pain, you know, modern love can be astray. It was great. And that's the performance that's on the record. Okay. That Peter goes on to make two more records that don't get as much promotion and don't get as much success, at least the third, not at first. And they have a much thinner sound than your record. Begging the question, although you ultimately work with Peter again, A, was Peter happy with your record? And why did you not do a second record with Peter right away? The thing about Peter is that um, he has to see... He has to see things from all possible sides. It's very important to him. And, uh, and I was consciously trying to break him out of his habit of, 
of overthinking things, you know, so I made it fast. I mean, we did that whole album and, and the mixing and everything in about 13 weeks. And um, for him, that was just too quick. I barreled, basically, I sort of took charge and barreled through his concerns. And, and he was very sweet and very polite. And actually, he was having a great time. Uh, NME came over and they did a, an interview with him, which which ended up being titled A Mumble Free Gabriel, you know, is rocking and rolling in Toronto or something like that. He was feeling confident. He was feeling like a rock star. And he was, and you could hear it. He was performing like that. But that was a temporary condition, I'm afraid. And when um, he went back to England and back to his home life, and um, his more familiar surroundings, he kind of reverted a bit back to the um, less than completely confident guy. And, and he started to wonder about all the things that he might have done on the record, if only I'd given him time. And I think at the same time, you know, Fripp didn't love me and probably was saying to him, you know, well, if, you know, if we'd done this, we could have experimented with that and that. This is too mainstream or whatever. And... Um, you know, it happens. It just happens. You have a really wonderful time with somebody and then they decide that, you know, that was great, but now they would like to try this instead. And that's what happened. You know, and then he had huge success. I mean, as, as big as my record was, it wasn't the biggest one. Although it turns out that Salisbury Hill is the most enduring right. of, of his songs. Yeah. So uh, at what point in this does your marriage break up? Not during Peter Gabriel, though we were... I mean, during uh, your whole story here. Well, you know, it was starting it, literally in 1975. and um, Well, the reason I'm asking is less your personal Sturm and Drang, and to what degree was your work in the rock and roll lifestyle contributing to the breakup of the marriage? Oh, hugely. And also my, my youth, you know, like I... I got married when we were, I got married at 17 and, and we had our son that year because we got married because, because Arlene was pregnant. And, um, and so, you know, that's just too young. I'm sorry. You're just not ready for it. I, I hadn't even really been out in a, you know, I hadn't played the field or dated or done anything. I hadn't done anything. And suddenly I was uh, I was a dad, and I had to be a breadwinner, and uh, and somehow I ended up in rock and roll, which is not necessarily the best lifestyle for you know trying to maintain a, a young family, and and you know and I was susceptible to everything. I was like you know oh boy, I loved the you know all the side you know all all the perks you know from the drugs to the sex, the whole rock and roll thing. Um, I I participated in and and so you know in in fairness to Arlene if this was an impossible situation but also you know we were you know maybe we wouldn't have ended up married together if we had had more time to develop a relationship and really understand who we were as people we may not have ended up together but now we had two kids and so we did the best we could um, we did a sort of trial separation I'm making. Uh, quotation marks in the air here. Um, I moved to New York and basically we broke down pretty much then. We did try a couple of times 
to see what it would be like if I came back to Toronto and we gave it another shot. But they, they were short, short forays into what was an impossible, um, you know, an impossible situation. So we ended up really breaking up then. We didn't divorce for um, several years thereafter. And I took care of, of her and, and the kids. We did have some conflict as one does when you're, divor- when you're divorcing. Um, but we're, Arlene is my co-grandparent of, of, you know, a wonderful little boy and co-parent with my, you know, our son, Joshua, of whom we are extremely proud. And also of our late son, David, you know, who we still, uh, dream about and talk about. And we have remained, um, friendly and we have a, a, you know, a pretty intimate relationship now in, you know, as friends, not lovers, but as friends. She calls me her husband. <laughs> That's pretty good. I've never heard that before. Yeah, me neither. I like it. Uh, who blew the whistle ultimately? Who wanted out? Her or you? It's never mutual. No, I was making her really unhappy. And I was unhappy. And um, yeah. Okay, so how do you end up working with Pink Floyd? So um, while we were doing a lot of work in in London with Alice Cooper, I met um, Caroline Christie, who had been working for uh, the legendary Derek Taylor at at, um, WEA in London. And she was kind of our handler. She was doing a great job with with us. And she basically knew everybody and everybody knew her. Um, At a point, I suggested to my then partners at Nimbus that we needed more of a presence in London and we should hire Caroline to work with us. So she, she came to work uh, for us and she, that, that way she got to see me in the studio a number of times. And um, so when it was time for Roger, uh, who by then was now um, Caroline's fiance, they were together, they were talking about their future. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. When you hired her, was she involved with Roger? No. Okay. No, but I was there when they met. I mean, I wasn't in the room. It was during that time that they met. So uh, I knew that she had, you know, she was going to date him. And, uh, and of course, I was a big Pink Floyd fan who wasn't at the time. Then um, they came to Canada for animals at the end of the animals tour. They played at Ivor uh, Wynn Stadium in Hamilton, Ontario, and uh, blew up the scoreboard. That's a famous story with their pyro. But anyway, so, uh, you know, Caroline called me because we're friends, and she came to a barbecue at our house. Um, Roger wasn't feeling well, so he didn't attend, but we talked about Roger and about her her relationship and how great things were, were and so on. And she said, you know, why don't you come with us and we'll go out to see the show together? And I said, I'd love to. So uh, I went with a friend of mine from the street who was who happened to be a psychiatrist, but was like this massive groupie, you know, this massive um, Pink Floyd groupie. And, and and we got in a limo with Roger and Caroline, drove out to uh, Hamilton, which is about an hour drive, and a little over an hour. And um, during that time, he was talking about his sense of alienation and um, how he had thought about, you know, even like building a wall between the band and the audience, etc. And um, and then they did the show. It was amazing. And then after the show, he and Steve O'Rourke decided to have a fist fight in the, in the bathroom, in the dressing rooms, and Roger cut his foot badly. So uh, Dr. Binney, my buddy, Dr. John Binney, who's a psychiatrist with, but a medical doctor, he, like, he wraps it up and we're going to the emergency room in Hamilton. So here we go in the limo with Roger and Caroline. We get him to the emergency room. We get his foot uh, stitched up, and then in the car on the way back to Toronto, we get um, we get very um, uh, frank with each other about stuff. You know, you just do. It's six o'clock in the morning now. You've been, you've been through an adventure, and um, and we talked again about the wall. You know, and I said, you know, that could actually be a really cool idea, and that was that. That was the end of the conversation. So uh, a few years later when clearly things were not going well for them. Maybe it wasn't even a few years. Maybe it was just a little over a year. I don't remember, honestly. Um, he decided that he was going to do this project, The Wall, which he had written, and basically it was going to be a Roger Waters record. That's it. But that he did not feel um, comfortable in handling the rest of the band he, he was sure that that was not going to go well. So Caroline said, well, you know, I've spent a lot of time with Bob in the studio and you guys met and you talked about this. Like, what do you think about bringing Bob in to help you with this? That's how the conversation first happened. Okay, but I thought based on prior conversation, they'd actually done some work before that you ultimately flew over and got involved. I flew over one time just to meet with Roger and I went to Roger and Caroline's house in the country. Roger played me two projects, one that became uh, pros and cons and 
one that was the wall and asked me which I preferred. There was no question that, to me, it was the wall, you know, that that would be the one that they ought to do next. And apparently he had done the same thing with members of the band. They picked that one. So he said, okay. And we started talking about how to do it, what it was missing, what role I ought to play. Um, it was beginning to become apparent to me that he wasn't really looking for me to get involved in the music. So I just had to say to him, look, you know, if what you're looking for is an engineer or a button pusher, I'm not the right guy for this. There are other people who could do a way better job of that than me. But if what you're looking for is a collaborator on the musical side of this thing and the conceptual side of it, I'd be thrilled and honored to, to participate. So we had that famous conversation where he said, mm, okay, but um, if you write anything, don't expect any publishing. <laughs> so uh, at that time, it was going to be an all Roger, you know, it was going to be an all Roger written, you know, written and, and performed by, you know. Anyway, so um, I just decided to let that slip and that we would deal with it at, at a later time. And so then I went away, and then they did do some work on this thing. They had gotten together in London and um, at Britannia Row, which was the studio that they worked out of at the time, and next door to which was their, their uh, PA, PA and Lights company. So they had a kind of a warehouse next door. They started work on that, and then they called me in. And um, I got to London, and I was told, uh, oh, by the way, um, it's not you and Roger producing, it's you, Roger, and David, which meant it, that was going to cut my, um, you know, my, my points and my, the, the, the money I was working for by uh, a third. And, um, and then my math's probably wrong about that. So I'm going to say, so that was going to cut down the right, points. We that all I was understand getting the numbers. I yeah. won't go into the specifics. Uh, anyway, so... Um, I said, well, you know, I actually got, I walked out of the room and just, and I called my lawyer and I just was saying like, you know, like, this is insulting. Here we go again. Well, you know, like the, like the, uh, the kiss situation. And I was just about to say, go fuck yourself. And he said, Bob, it's Pink Floyd. And I went, yeah, you're right. <laughs> so I went back in, I'll go, okay. And then they said, and oh, by the way, um, James Guthrie is going to be producing too. And I said, no, sorry. That, I got to draw the line there. That's not happening. He's an engineer. I like him. He's a nice guy. He's talented. Uh, I'm happy to work with him. He is not producing this record. So we had a little bit of a conversation about that. And I didn't mean it to hold James back in any way. And it wasn't that I'm not um, a generous guy when it comes to those things, but it wasn't quite appropriate. So... That was my belief then, and I stand by it now. So anyway, so it was the three of us. We were the wait, 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 but doesn't Guthrie at this point get credit as a producer? Yes, at the by the very end, he got credit. Did he get any? Did you? I don't uh, know whether he got paid for it, but God knows, you know, he is he has stayed on with them as a as a go to guy on many many levels for forever. You know, so he, you know, he. I think he did well with this relationship and he deserved to because he was amazing. He was a great engineer, a very musical guy. Um, he was exactly the right guy for the project at the time. So uh, that's how it started. And, um, and on the first day, on my first day, um, they had rented me a really nice flat 
they had given me a car. The um, session call was for 10 a.m. They like to work from 10 to 6. This was all new for me, boy. You know, this was not rock and roll, but I was, you know, I was happy to do it. So I got in the car and the studio was in a place called Islington, uh, just, just off the Angel, which may be the most complicated intersection in the entire civilized world. So, uh, and, and, and there was no, no GPS in those days. So no phone talking to me. I had a map and I was trying to find Brit Row. It was impossible. And I just kept going around in circles and ending up in the wrong one way and all this stuff. It was terrible. And I finally found the studio and there was no parking because it's a tiny little street and all of them had their, their matching BMWs lined up in front of the studio. There's no place for me to park. So then I found a parking spot finally, and I, by that time I get back to the studio, I am frazzled, I'm angry, I'm just, and I'm sweating, and I, you know, and I come up, I, I come up the door to the studio, and I go down the stairs towards the, uh, the control room, and up, coming up the stairs is Nick Griffiths, who was their old engineer, and, and it was, but it was almost like meeting Igor on my way to the dungeon, you know, and Igor looks at me and says, they did this to me. You know, as I'm heading into the control room, I open the door and people are not happy. There's a there's four guys and Roger staring at the door, tapping on his watch. Which was that was it for me. That was that was the last straw, right? A guy tapping on his watch. I said, excuse me, can, can I speak to you outside for a second? So we went out in the hallway and I just I, I start, it just yelled at him. I said, I already have a father, asshole. I will that. This is so demeaning. You know, it's disrespectful and I will not be treated like this. And blah, blah, blah. While I'm yelling, what I don't realize is the guys in the control room, they can hear it. And the rest of the members of the band are going, yes. You know, like somebody's standing up to him. You know, like I didn't know any of this stuff really, but I just had to get it out. It was just my frustration at the morning. Anyway, I got it out and we came back in. I said, now let's go back in there and let's work like partners. Okay. Let's work like collaborators and let's not do any of this shit anymore. And, and so we went in and, the, the mood in the room, it changed remarkably, you know, from, from when I first came in. Anyway, you know, we had our ups and our downs during the making of it. We had dis, disagreements and stuff, but our relationship, Rogers and mine, was set at that moment. And from that point on, it was respectful. It was cordial. At some times, it was, it was like friendship. Like he would wake me up on a Sunday morning to go to McDonald's with his kids, you know, because misery loves company? No, but I mean, seriously, he just, you know, he liked to hang out. And, um, and so did I. And the thing that happened at the end of the project that estranged us for all that time is something that I regret enormously because, because I, I did love the man. And I, and I loved working with him. I loved his brain. I loved the challenge of him. And, uh, and it was it was very saddening to me that 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 relationship died over my misstep. Okay, can you tell us what the misstep is? Are you comfortable with that? Okay. Sure. The misstep is this. The misstep is this. A journalist from in, in Toronto who had been my friend, a guy that I hung out with, was supposed to come to L.A. to see the L.A. shows at the uh, sports arena. And, um, and he called me up a few weeks ahead of time. And he said, the magazine won't let me go. I can't go. And I'm dying. And I said, oh, God, I'm so sorry. Because I knew what a fan he was, you know. And, 
we were going to hang out. I was going to introduce him to the boys. And, you know, like this, this was a massive thing for him to be able to attend it and, and, and review it and all that stuff. And he said, it's, he said, I can't tell you, I want, I, like, I want to hang myself. It's just so awful. What am I going to miss? And I said, I can't tell you that, David. I, I had signed an NDA. And he said, oh, come on. It's just us guys. It's just the two of us. Come on. So I said, look, I'm, I'm about to sit down for dinner, but I'll just give you a, like, okay, okay. I'll just give you some broad strokes, uh, short, but, but trust me, like, you'll get to see it. I'll make sure you get to see it. Maybe New York or something like that. He said, yeah, yeah, but I'm, you know, I'm dying. So I told him some things about the show. We hung up. In Billboard, the following week, it said, over dinner with Bob Ezrin, we learned, we, the journalistic we, and it laid out some stuff about the show. And I got a cease and desist letter like immediately from the Pink Floyd office. I was told that Roger was apoplectic at this and he had every right to be. And, and that, um, you know, they were, they were going to take action against me and that I was not to come to the show. And, and I mean, it really was serious. It was really serious. And, and, you know, I was a naive guy. Like, up until then, nobody ever lied to me before like that. Nobody had ever, like, you know, put me in a position where I compromised myself. They made me compromise myself, and then they put me into trouble. I'd never had that experience, honestly. I just thought people were what they said they were. Wait, wait, there's a rule here. Never yeah, trust writers. Never. I know. Okay, switching back. There's some stories you told me I want to cover. A, let's go back to the wall and the table read. Well, you know, all during the making of the wall, we were also creating what we saw as the, as the stage show, right? This is another one where thinking through the stage show informed the record in a huge way. And we were building models and we were experimenting with bricks, you know, like what would bricks look like? How would they fall over and not kill people? How can we make it go up fast and down fast, et cetera, et cetera. By the end of the making of the album, where we were now in rough mix territory, we, we, had, we had not yet uh, gotten to mixing. Um, we had a table model of what the, um, of what the stage was going to look like and... Um, while I'm saying this, I realize I'm answering the wrong question, but that's okay. You're going to want to hear this. So we had a table model of the, of the show and we played the songs and moved the little figurines around. We had little men that were band members and we had little model inflatables and little models of this and that. And we played through the show so that everybody could see it for the first time, see the, the physical realization of it for the first time and know what it was that we had been working on for this length of time and so, um, you know, so hard. And, and, and it was a, that was a magical moment because everybody, including us, playing it all out like that for the first time, everybody saw what we, what we knew we had then. Back to your original question. Right. So um, thinking about the wall as a theatrical piece and thinking about it as um, very much a concept record, not in a loose sense, in a very um, literal sense, that it was going to be a story that took us from beginning to end. Um, 
I started playing with the sequence of things, of songs and, and bits of songs that uh, Roger had given me and things that we were working on in the studio. Um, and I started to see a kind of story arc. Um, and then one night, I don't know, it just, bam, just went off in my head. Um, and I saw it all. Like the, So there it is. There's the story. And I wrote it down. I wrote it like uh, a script, like a film script, because it was easier to visualize that way. So it, it opens up with act, act one, scene one, um, a, you know, the sound of a bomb falling that, that does not ignite, and then a baby cries. Now we're into the next bit. And, we just, and I described every scene and stuck the song title and the lyrics in there. Lyrics as though they were dialogue. So when you look at a film script, you have a description of the scene, then you have the name of the, of the character, and then you have in a smaller uh, window, you have the, the words they say. So I, I use that format. And where I didn't have the, the song yet that told this part of the story, I just told the part of the story and said, song TBW, to be written. Um, and it, it came really quickly. And by the end of a few hours, I had a script for what I, what I saw as the story arc of the wall. And then I brought that in the next morning, made copies, photocopies, as we had in those days, you know. Um, no, sorry. I, make, I made mimeograph copies, as we had in those days, and uh, handed them out to everybody. And I said, look, and, and, um, and I had um, James ready to play the, the pieces in the order that they were in the script. Um, so we did a table read through as though it was a movie. And, you know, I read and, and then the song would play and we'd sing on top of it or the lyrics were already there and we would listen to it. And it became very clear at that moment um, what the shape of the story was going to be and, and what we had and, more importantly, what we still didn't have. Tell us the story of the creation of Comfortably Numb. It's been told a lot of times. Um, well, I want your version, which we, I've heard from you previously. Okay. Well, the, you know, the, the, the story of Comfortably Numb is this, that, that in this script that I had written, there was a song um, in D, I had noted, because that would be a really great key to go to from the song before, um, that during which uh, Pink checks out. And, um, and so every day, by the way, we would have tea because we're British, and we would have tea. And tea is at, at 4 o'clock. Every day at 4 o'clock, come hell or high water, we go upstairs to the, uh, the, the upstairs uh, conservatory, and somebody would bring us a tray with, with tea and bickies. So we'd sit there and we'd talk about what we were doing and what, what we'd have to get done in the, in the remaining 90 minutes, right? And in there, there was a lot, that was where a lot of stuff was discovered too, because I would throw things out and people would make suggestions. So I said, has anybody got a song in D? We need a song in D for this, this slot and to tell this part of the story. And David said, well, I, you know, I've got this little piece uh, I was working on for my solo album, but, you know, it's not quite finished, but, you know, this might work well here. And so he plays that high string part tuned in a way I'd never heard before and sounding just like magic. It was, it was gold dust falling from the sky. And, um, and 
but it didn't go anywhere. I mean, it was, it was a lyric that was not relevant to this story. So I said to Roger, you know, what do you think about taking this and let's, let's, get, let's get the story in uh, over top of this thing? And, um, and Roger said, you know, I'm not, writing, I'm not writing lyrics or melody to that tripe, you know, or something like that. You know, something that was half a joke, but half not, not a joke. And so as half a joke, but half not a joke, I said to him, so you don't really think you can handle the assignment? Is that, is that, is that what you're saying? Um, and, and he told me to go fuck myself, as he often did. And, um, and then we went back to work, you know, and a couple of days later, he came and, um, and played me the demo that he had created for Comfortably Numb. And he said, here's your fucking song, you know, and, and, and I mean, when I heard those, and I had the lyrics on paper too. There is no pain you are receding. A distant ship smoke on the horizon. You are only coming through in waves. Your lips move, but I can't hear what you're saying. When I was a child, I had a fever and my hands felt just like two balloons. Now I have that feeling once again. This is not me. You do not understand. This is not how I am. I have become comfortably numb. I re- and I've got goose flesh right now, like right now, all over my body when I say that to you. Imagine when I read it for the first time and heard it for the first time. It was one of the most brilliant things I'd ever read in literature, poetry, or song lyric. It was beyond. Okay. Now, the other thing you've told me is... You have this experience. It's unbelievably uh, successful. You're at a pinnacle of your career. You go back to Toronto. You expect your phone to blow up and crickets. Crickets. Nothing. After the wall, um, I decided that I wanted to come back to Toronto. I wanted to spend time with my kids. I wanted to... um, I wanted to lead a more, you know, I wanted to have more of a home life and, and why not? I just had the biggest record in the, you know, the biggest record in the world and maybe the biggest album, uh, certainly of the last 10 years. And it was heading on to be the biggest rock album of all time. So I would go back to Toronto and of course people would call me and they would come there to work with me. Of course they would. Why wouldn't they? And then, yeah, like after 12 months, it was crickets and I became Bob who, and, uh, I was working with a lot of local talent. Some were, you know, really terrific. And I mean, I did an album with Murray McLaughlin, really talented folk singer. And, um, and I worked on, with a band called The Kings. We did a, a single called Switch in the Glide, which is, you know, was one of those one-hit wonder. Um, it was a big hit um, in the United States. And I bought the yeah. album. And, did you? The Kings are Absolutely. here. Good man. Good man. Good man. Um, and, and then Randy Phillips became the manager of the Kings. And we went in to do the second album. And uh, Randy, who, as you know, went on to, uh, he ran AG for a while. He was uh, Rod Stewart's manager and, uh, and has, you know, a multitude of adventures in, in music land. Uh, and is a really smart guy and, and, uh, and, and, you know, we liked each other. So he just said to me, what the fuck are you doing here? Like, you need to come back out to LA, you know, you, you need to come where the work is. And, um, you know, by that time, um, 
I remarried and, and uh, we had a, a, a baby girl and we had all, you know, hers, mine and ours. So now we were, we had five kids and, um, and uh, it was not a trivial decision to make, you know, but we all decided uh, we would do it. And, and really, you want to know the real reason why we uh, decided to go to L.A. was because my parents had already moved there. And I, was, I felt terribly guilty from the time they left that they were so far away from their grandkids and they weren't getting to see them very much. So this was, you know, this was not a hard decision to make. I didn't like L.A. I didn't want to live in L.A. I wanted to go to New York. I wanted to go to London, but my parents were in L.A., so that's where we went. And the deal was, we're going to try it for nine months, and if Dad doesn't like it, we're going to go to New York. And everybody agreed. Then we got to L.A. within, you know, literally uh, four weeks, five weeks, I was working with Rod Stewart, and stuff just started to happen. Um and at the end of the nine months, though, I was not liking the experience of living in L.A. I loved the work, but I didn't like living there. And I just said to everybody, OK, um, you know what we talked about before? I don't like it. We're going to go. And they all looked at me and went, dude, we'll help you pack. <laughs> you know, like, like the kids, were, you know, they all had that. By that time, they had the, the big 80s hair, you know, the shoulder pads. And they were all do this and do that. They loved it. They loved being there. And um, so we stayed. And it ended up being really good for all of us. Okay. Now, most producers have a window where they're essentially done. In your particular case, you have a long career. You are a traditional producer, whereas today many producers are essentially engineers. You get into the concepts, the writing, etc. But then it does seem to slow down. You have another adventure, and then you come back. Can you walk us through those changers? Well, you know, when, when we were doing the division bell, um, and I was, I was commuting back and forth to do the division bell. First of all, that was really wearing. Um, but second of all, you know, nobody was like, we, we were not working as hard as we used to, you know, we were spending a lot of time, um, making pasta and, uh, having a, you know, and going out on the river and stuff. It's a beautiful studio, great setting, wonderful. Um, and I was beginning to lose my sense of motivation. You know, I felt like I was repeating myself on some levels. And I guess, I guess it's just like after so many years at that point, this is now 24 years into the uh, adventure, right? I had already started working on some CD-ROM stuff. I'd already started on technology. I didn't go straight from music and then start technology. I've always been a technology guy anyway, on a certain level. So that was really exciting me. Like every time I would be with that and those people, like I was just firing on all cylinders. But when I was going back to the boat, which was beautiful and wonderful, which I loved, and with David Gilmore, who I love, and all this, you know, this great team, I was kind of in you know, I felt like I was in a comfort zone and I didn't want to be in a comfort zone. So I came home and I said, you know, I think I'm going to, I'm going to stop that for a while. And I think I'm going to uh, go into this technology thing, you know, because I believed in interactive entertainment. I was once again, working with brilliant, amazing people, working with the Monty Python guys, you know, I signed them to our company to make a series of, of CD-ROM games. Um, I was already friends with Eric Idle, and I became uh, really good friends with Terry Gilliam, who, you know, 
you know, Jan and I had lunch with him on last trip to England and I stay in close touch with him. He's an amazing guy. Um, and Howie Mandel, God bless him, another Torontonian, uh, got involved with us to do all these educational titles and stuff. I was just having a blast. And, and the creative team and, uh, and technology team, these were people that were at the top of their game. And that's who I wanted to be with. So we built a studio in um, Burbank. We built a large uh, uh, animation and, and digital entertainment studio there. We were doing work for Sony. We were doing work for Disney. Um, we invented lip sync on the fly. We had um, a new digital ink and paint program that made it possible for us to turn out animation faster than anybody else. We had an amazing team. And in that building, we had a couple hundred young hungry, energized people as, uh, as uh, animators and uh, creative directors and, uh, and engineers too. And that's where I wanted to be. So that's where I was. What happened was um, Merck Mercuriatus was, was uh, managing Storm Thorgerson, who is the guy who made all the Pink Floyd artwork except for the wall, which was Jerry Scarf. But Storm and his partner, Poe, they created some of the greatest artwork of all time, some of the most legendary album covers, and certainly all of that um, historical Pink Floyd stuff. So uh, they wanted to do a CD-ROM of Storm's work. They wanted to get all of his works and him talking and all that stuff. And, and Merck uh, grew up in Toronto and was a, uh, an employee of um, the two guys who owned Sanctuary. And, uh, and, a, and a music manager. I mean, he, he came to Storm through music management. He decided to make it his life's work to get me back into a studio. So they came, he and Storm, to Los Angeles to talk to us about doing the Storm project. And he announced to me, basically said, you are going back into a studio if it kills me. And I said, do your best, you know, like, okay, sure, kid, you know, but he was relentless, like, like unstoppable as he is in life. Merck Mercuriatus is relentless and his latest venture proves that. It's called Hypnosis, which was the name of uh, Storm's uh, design company that did all those albums. And in honor of Storm, it is called Hypnosis and, and uh, Merck's son is called Storm. I That's that his I name. Did not know. Yeah. Look, Storm was very meaningful to all of us and very dear to all of us. And if you could just see my, my room here, you will see Storm artwork all around the walls of this house. Um, you know, some that I bought. And, and I also paid for him to do a, a, a limited edition art paper ver, uh, uh, edition of these of these works and so out of that i got a few artist proofs too so this is like a storm shrine in this house you know Merck's on a mission Merck's on a mission and he starts sending me stuff and he starts calling me in for meetings i think i uh i did meet with iron maiden you know based on uh Merck's recommendation and and i got to hang out a little bit with bruce dickinson the lead singer we got on very well but it's really his band yeah but, but for some reason it didn't work out but his cousin, Rob Dickinson, was the lead singer in Catherine right. And then Merck brought me some demos from those guys. 
and they knocked my socks off. The sound of Rob Dickinson, in, in a way, reminded me a little bit of Peter. He had that, that dusky, um, beautiful British baritoner, you know, that, um, that I really loved. And, and I, I guess, you know, Merck infected me with that virus, you know, and slowly but surely, like it wasn't going to be my record, but would I consider maybe executive producing or working with the team, you know, and slowly but surely he sucked me into, uh, uh, you know, playing a much larger role in the project and loving it. I loved it. I loved doing it. It reminded me of the excitement of the process and um, that sort of, that lit the fire underneath me again. Okay. Now, before we get back to a couple of records you've done in the last decade or so, philanthropy is a big part of your life. Can you tell us the genesis of that and what you've been involved in? I was in the hospital once, you know, uh, I checked myself in for drug abuse to a hospital. This is approximately when? This is approximately in the, you know, 75, like when I moved to New York check myself in a Gracie Square. Not the nicest hospital in the world. It's a psychiatric hospital. But I wanted to go somewhere where they locked the doors and I wanted to stop doing drugs. So uh, I'm in a room and in psychiatric hospitals, there's a window on your door. You don't get to be behind closed doors, right? People, people can observe you. And your name's on the door out front. Now, of course, I moved in with a harpsichord and I had, uh, you know, and I had a guitar. And I mean, it was like, I was there to not, to not get in trouble, and, but I wasn't there um, to stop thinking and creating and making music. So I was kind of doing both. So I spent a lot of time with the door closed. However, several times a day, an old man would come by and look at me through the window and just stare at me. And then he would turn around and go away. So one day he came and he looked at me and stared at me and I opened the door to say, can I help you, sir? And he said, you know what means the name Ezrin? And I said, uh, no, not really. He said, it means the helper. And then he turned around and walked down the hall with his, his shit-stained ass showing through his you know, through those medical, those embarrassing medical robes that they would dress people in. And that hit me like a ton of bricks. But um, that's only just an illustration. Why? You know, where is it? What does it come from? It's baked in, man. It's baked. First of all, it's baked into us as a people. My uh, grandparents used to put food on the, on the doorstep for what they would refer to as the poor family during the Depression, when they had nothing. And, um, and my great-grandfather, into whose house I was born, actually, when they would have the high holidays, we would come over and we'd open the cellar door. We had cellars in those days, and there was a tin, a tin um, box on the door that said... Uh, Sadaka, and you would have to you would have to put money in the box before um, before the holiday would start. And and my father was a doctor and a healer, and my mother uh, opened our home to every stray in not just the neighborhood, but from all, you know all walks of life and from all corners of the world. So I grew up with that. This was normal. Normal is you open your home, you open your heart, you do what you can to help people. 
Well, I certainly know you're involved with the Mr. Holland's Opus Foundation, but you also started Music Rising with Edge from U2. How'd you even know Edge? And, I, you know, as I said at the beginning of our first uh, podcast, you're the straw that stirs the drink. I mean, <laughs> you sit at home and all of a sudden you have ideas and you just start ringing people up? Yeah, you know what? Uh, sometimes I just bump into somebody and then I have the idea, you know, because my dad used to say, like, when we were little kids, he, when we had company over and it was almost always relatives, right, that would come over to our house, my dad would come upstairs and wake us up literally, to come downstairs and sing for the relatives. And, and we would go, oh, and my dad would always say this phrase, and he said it until the day he died. This moment will never come again. This moment will never come again. So down we would go, because that moment would never come again, and we had to sing. And, and in a way, that's how, you know, that's a little bit of how I live my life. You know, this moment will never come again. And so when I bump into somebody and, and I just suddenly I just see all the potential of the of the encounter and I go for it. Why not? This moment will never come again. I may never see them again. Bob is understating it because he's really very heavily involved in philanthropy and you might bump into him yourself. Okay, well, you, you may bump into me. But so Katrina happens, and we're watching it on television. It is, uh, you know, next to the next to 9-11. It's just one of the most devastating things you can see in real time happening right before your eyes in a major city in, in America. And it's not just any city. It's the magic city that my uncle, the jazz fanatic, used to play records from and tell me stories about. And I used to dream of as a place where that's where music lived, you know, and, and it is a place that the members of U2 also were, you know, that they were in love with and they'd actually gone there and worked and stuff because it is, it is the heart of uh, jazz, uh, rhythm and blues, rock, you name it. Everything comes from West Africa through the Caribbean in through that port and into America, most everything. So when we're watching it go underwater and we're watching people die, we're watching people on rooftops saying, please save me and stuff. It just, it, I, first of all, I cried watching. And secondly, then I got really angry because I didn't see the response that I wanted to see from the U.S. government. It was, as you recall, you know, people were sort of saying, well, you know, what you're doing, you're doing a good job, whatever he said. Bush said about Brownie. Uh, Hell of right. a heck of a job, Brownie. That's right. what he said. So um, I was planning to do something. And then I got a call uh, from Marty Albertson, who at the time was the chairman and CEO of Guitar Center and sat on the board with me of the Mr. Holland's Opus Foundation and knew a bit about me and, and sort of the other things that I was doing. And so he called me up and he said, look, Henry Jeskowitz, who, who owns Gibson Guitars, he wants to make a commemorative guitar and sell a million dollars worth of it. And he wants to um, buy instruments and give them to people there who have lost their, their musical instruments in the flood which sounded like a pretty good idea, except for the part about giving instruments to people because we didn't know how we were going to be able to do that. But uh, I said, well, l let me think about it and I'll call you back. At the time, I was also on the board, uh, the LA chapter board of Neris, and, um, and it was a trustee. Um, so I was, he, you know, I had a, 
relationship with the people in Music Hairs, and I called up Kristen Madsen, who was running Music Hairs at the time, and I just said, listen, um, I know you guys are sending money to uh, your members out there. How many people have lost their instruments? And she said, that's a really good question. I don't know. So up, to, up till then, they'd had about 1,500 requests for support. They went back to everybody, and she came back to me literally a few days later and said, there's 1,100 people who've lost their instruments. So then I thought, well, a million dollars, give or take a little, that's a thousand dollars a person. So I said to Marty, Marty, if we gave people a thousand dollars and they shopped wholesale or at, at your cost for instruments, what could they buy with that? And he, God bless Marty, we went from that conversation to tell you what. I'll give you the first $250,000 of the sale of these guitars, which hadn't even been built yet. I'll give you that money. And oh, by the way, I'm going to create a dedicated 1-800 line for you at Musician's Friend, which is the online service of Guitar Center, that these people can call. They can give them a code. Those people will help them buy the instrument and we'll ship it to them wherever they are. Couldn't be better. So... Um, that same time, right about that same time, U2 was playing Toronto. And, uh, and uh, Michael Cole and I were invited to lunch with the band because, you know, we sort of knew some of the people involved. And, and uh, so we went to a lunch and Roger McNamee was at that lunch. The guy that, that you interviewed. Right, he started right? Elevation Partners with Bono. Yes. And, um, and, uh, and so was Jimmy Ivey. So we sat at the table and, and they sat me next to the edge, who I loved. I thought, I, you know, I, he was really fun to sit with. He, was, he had a great sense of humor. He was easy to talk to. He was comfortable. We got laughing. He says to me, you know, the first single I ever bought was School's Out. I said, you're kidding me. And he said, nope, first single I ever bought. And that's why I'm in the music business. Then Bono chirps up and he goes, uh, actually, I stole it, but it was my first single. <laughs> <laughs> or something like, you know, and then and then Jimmy Iovine uh, chimes in because Jimmy's first gig was at the, the record plant and they put him on Alice Cooper as an assistant engineer, basically a runner um, under me because they figured if he could survive me, he could survive anything. <laughs> I used to break in their guys, right? And he was amazing. He was just like quick-witted, smart. Jimmy's shoes. That is exactly right. We named him Jimmy Shoes because he always showed up in different, you know, he had, he had style. Jimmy had style. And, uh, and of course, you know, he went on to be more successful than any of us by a mile. But um, so they were all in the room and they were just talking about Alice Cooper and this and that. And then that gave me the, um, uh, let's say, it, it gave me the confidence to be able to turn to Edge and say, okay, look, I'm, I'm going to do this thing for the people of New Orleans. And I want to know if you'd like to play too. Um, at first, what I said to him was, do you have any guitars we could sell, you know, and like make some money, like guitars you're not using that we could sell and make some money? And he goes, I'll do you better than that. And he said, uh, give me your number and I'll call you on the weekend. So I gave him my home number and, and left the lunch figuring that was just another rock star moment, you know, where you give out your number and you never hear from anybody ever again. Saturday afternoon, we're, we're barbecuing and I get a phone call. Uh, hey, Bob, it's The Edge. 
And okay, now I've spoken to Yamaha, I've spoken to uh, this manufacturer and that manufacturer, and they're willing to do this and they're willing to do that. And what I think we ought to do is we ought to uh, coordinate with Marty and we ought to, and I knew at that moment he was in. So I said, you know what, buddy, let's be partners, you know, let's do this together. And he said, I'd, you know, I'd love to, I'd be honored to be able to do something for that place, you know, and... So from there, it, it just exploded quickly. We called up uh, uh, Mike Rapino and Arthur Fogel uh, from Live Nation. And at that point, that company was called Spinco. It had just been spun out of, of Clear Channel. And, um, and we asked them for a dollar on a ticket to help us to raise money. We hit up the Bush Clinton Fund which had been established just for stuff like this because you uh, 2 had a connection through uh, uh, one of Clinton's aides and they gave us $500,000. The Buffett family gave us money. Uh, suddenly people were giving us money and we, and we were now able not just to fulfill the needs of uh, the musicians who had lost instruments, but now we could go and help the churches, the community centers, and later on, a, uh, a little while down the line, we could help schools. Over, over time, we raised well over $7 million. We got instruments to everybody that needed it. We still had a million dollars left. And so I went to Tulane University, and um, we created a course of study in music rising, the musical cultures of the Gulf South. So the idea was that when it happens again, because it's not a matter of if, we all know that. That this music would never be lost. We were gonna digitize it, we were gonna get videos of the people who played it, we were gonna, we were gonna make it something that people could study till the end of time. And, and it's there and it's been up for years. Okay, so at this point in time, I'm not talking about going back through your career, what do you see yourself as? You see yourself as a record producer again? That's very funny. What do I see myself as? You know, I see myself as you keep you keep using the term alta cocker. That's me for sure. <laughs> I see myself as a you know as a fetchy old Jew. You know, I I got a headache of my back and my knees. And, um, I've never said I am a record producer. In fact, I was conscious about that because. Um, People would say that stuff like, well, you know, what do you do? Well, I am uh, this. And I would think to myself, well, you're, that's not what you are. It's what you do. So people say, well, what do you do? I say, well, you know, I'm, uh, I'm in the music business. I produce stuff. I produce other kinds of entertainment too. And, uh, but also I'm in education. I'm in um, uh, a little bit in um, uh, civil rights and uh, justice and water. And, and I'm a big-time, uh, right now, evangelist for the environment. Okay. So, yes, you are involved in uh, all kinds of things. You had Ling Ling uh, and Metallica hooked up for the Grammys. Yeah, we did, we, we did the Grammys. That was fun. That was okay. really cool. You just had a huge success with Andrea Bocelli, a record that was long in the birthing. And you've also worked with Fish. How many albums have you done with Fish at this point? Um, I did two albums with Fish. And how did that come together? So um, they were getting to a point where they were going to make records again. I think they'd had a little bit of a hiatus and they wanted to do something uh, serious. Paige, um, the keyboard player, was a big fan of my work. He knew who I was. So when they were 
thinking about who maybe to work with. I guess my name got thrown into the hat. And, um, and I know um, some of the people from Red Light. So uh, I had done the Pete Seeger 90th birthday celebration at Madison Square Garden where we had uh, Dave Matthews and a bunch of other people. So I'd worked with Corin on stuff like that. You know, I guess, you know, mine was a familiar name. So somebody said, well, why don't we meet him? I went to Dick's Sporting Goods in Alpharetta, Georgia. And, and to tell you the truth, the reason I went really was because my granddaughter, Zoe, was living in Alpharetta, Georgia at the time. And this gave me an opportunity to go see her, spend time with her, because it was hard to get to Georgia. You know, I was not sort of on my beaten path. To see her and spend time with her and have her come to a show with me and just like really have a great bonding experience with my beautiful girl. So I said, okay, I'll do it. And then, um, and Zoe came with me. Then we had dinner with them. I didn't realize that bringing my granddaughter was a really big plus to these guys. They're real family guys. Their kids roll around at sound check. You know, they love to um, they love to bring their whole families on the road. They're very very hu- human and and um, and you know they're good Vermont boys. You know, they're just like really nice, uh, progressive, family oriented guys. So. They like me, and we had really good conversations. Another one of those, a little bit like the uh, Deep Purple conversation, um, where I just said, you know, what I saw on stage tonight is amazing, and we're going to need to try and get that. Let's not be, let's not be limited by lengths of songs or any of that other stuff. Let's just really go for it. I went to Vermont and worked with them in their barn, and um, we spent weeks together, and we had a lot of fun. Uh, you know, routining material, picking songs. These were guys who, you know, who would come in with like scores of of songs to to pour through each of them, and um, and then we broke it down to an album's worth of material. We had a lot of fun doing it. Then we went to Nashville, and the sessions. I try to keep the sessions as as fast and exciting as they are, and and you know, to create an atmosphere for them that was. Um, that was uh, inspiring and um, and felt safe. So they really went for it. They liked it. The album came out. People said nice things about it. I think it did okay. They really loved the experience. So then they decided when it came time to do it again that they would call me back. Okay. Fish is a good example here. From the beginning of their career, it has primarily been about the live show. And the records even when they were the major label with Electra, have never been as big as their live show. In addition, you mentioned your work with Deep Purple. Now, needless to say, they're a classic heritage act. But we know in the streaming era, it focuses more on tracks, even if you put out the album. Right. And in a world where it's flattened, a lot of these records do not have the dominance that they once had, irrelevant of their quality, irrelevant of their genre. What's it like in terms of your motivation? Because when you were making records with people like Alice Cooper and Kiss and Pink Floyd, you knew these records were going to come out. They were going to get a good listen. And based on their quality and luck, they might really become known by everybody, which is almost an impossibility today. Okay. That's a, that's a big question, big, long question. In the case of Deep Purple, for example, and this is true of Alice too right now, they have a fan base that just stays with them no matter what they do. And those people, they buy physical product. 
So in a world where nobody buys physical product, deep purple sales are primarily physical. And in Germany alone, they sell a lot of records. So um, while you want to say, well, you know, the, you know, why did I do that? You're, there's nothing in it for you. I actually got royalty payments out of the Deep Purple albums, and I didn't get that out of a lot of contemporary people. And with, and with um, Andrea Bocelli, for example, we sold a million physical albums. Million. So um, there are people who still buy. Uh, um, admittedly, they're mostly older people, um, and but older people like music too, you know, and they have a right to it. Anyway, what motivates me to work with Fish? Well, what motivated me to work with Fish was just because it was just such an off the wall idea, and they were so good. The players, oh my god! I saw the show and I'm like, wow! I want to spend a few weeks in the studio with those guys, right? That that could be a lot of fun. Luckily, I'm in a position where, um, you know, I if I didn't do that project, I wasn't going to starve. So. I, I got to do it for the right reasons. I, I wasn't doing it for the paycheck. I was doing it for the excitement of it. And, and sure enough, that, that proved to be true. In the Deep Purple uh, case, it was exactly the same thing. I went to see Deep Purple play live at Massey Hall again in Toronto. It was... Um, it, it was, uh, was it the Machine Head tour where they played the whole album? No. No, oh, it yeah, wasn't. I, I would have loved that. I didn't see that show. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but um, but you saw him at Massey Hall. So Neil Warnock, their their agent is also Alice Cooper's agent and 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 Pink Floyd's agent for the longest while. A friend, he called me up and he said, "You're going to produce the next Deep Purple album." I said, "No, I'm not." And he said, "Yes, you are," and I said, "No, I'm not." I you know I don't want to get pigeonholed as the oldies guy, and you know I've got to stay with Alice, and that's for me. That's about it for classic bands. But he said, well, you, you have to just do me this favor. Just go see them play live. Now, understand, Machine Head, the album, was, was uh, a seminal listening experience for me. That did a huge amount to put me in touch with my love for heavy music. Um, I was once asked if I would produce Made in Japan, but I was doing something else and couldn't do it. And as you may recall, that went on to become like the biggest rock album of the past 10 years. It sold like 12 million copies or something like that. I just kept watching the numbers thinking, I didn't make that money. Oh, crap. Anyway, but so it wasn't like Deep Purple were strangers to me. And um, so I went to see them play live. The opening parts of the show, they were playing their more contemporary material, and it didn't really get me off, I have to say. Um, but then, in the, you know, about halfway through the, the set, they go into this jam where they're all, um, they're like showing off. They're, they're, they, they hit the virtuoso button, and they're playing stuff that just knocks my socks off. And, and all the old people in the audience who up until then were like politely... Uh, applauding or yelling from their seats, they got up and they start dancing in the aisles with their arms twirling circles like they were back in Woodstock. It was amazing. It was crazy. And, and I thought, you know, I haven't heard that in rock and roll in so long, I almost forgot it existed. Prague, real, unapologetic, virtuoso level Prague. I loved it. 
And then, of course, they closed the show with all the classics, which you know just reminded me of how great a band they were. So the next morning, we had a late breakfast, and we talked about the possibility of working together. Um, by this time, I think that they had had their confidence shaken by people who told them that they had to try to be a contemporary rock band. Like, that's not fair to do to guys of our age, you know? It's just not. It's are just not who gonna, we are. Yeah, it's not who we are. It's not going to happen. And, um, and I said to them at breakfast, I said, look, if, you, if, if you're looking at me as a guy who's going to make like a quote-unquote contemporary rock album with you, I, I think you've come to the wrong place because I don't think that's possible for you. Nor do I think it's relevant. I think that's bad for you. I think if you want to make a record that sounds like what I heard in that jam session and in those classic songs later on in the set, where we don't give a shit about length of song, how many you know pieces, all this stuff, we don't think about radio. We just go in there and be, be bravely and unapologetically prog. I'm in. If that's what you want, I'm in. Uh, and, and, uh, you know, and I left. Now, uh, Steve and I had already worked together. Steve Morse, the guitar player, we had already worked together when he was in Kansas, who I also produced, by the way. And and the Dixie Dregs before that. And and when Dick, Dixie Dregs all along, you know, the Dregs went on for a long time. And Roger Glover was one of my production heroes. Like he had produced some of the albums that I, you know, being a prog fan and a British rock fan, he had produced some of the greatest albums in my collection. So for me, like this would have been a fun, this would have been a great gig. I realized after that meeting would be a great gig. So, okay, I'm going to go for it. And apparently they liked the speech and um, we started the process and, and, um, and, and I've just enjoyed the hell out of this relationship. We've, we've become, we're friends. We talk, uh, you know, when we're not working together and, um, you know, we see each other in various places. I, I, you know, Ian Gillen came to do his vocals to our to Nassau in the Bahamas, where we have a place, and he stayed with us. He stayed at our house, and we did the vocals together, and we ate together, and hung together. You know, I really like them, but I really admire them. Like these are really, really great musicians. He's an incredibly good vocalist, and and. And he and Roger are seriously good lyricists too. So, you know, for me, that was a that has been, and I hope continues to be a really fun gig. And we sold records. Okay, we made money. We're in this crazy COVID era, but what do you got in the pipeline, if anything? Well, looks like uh, nobody's going on the road for a little while. So, um, uh, you know, we're just finishing up Alice's album that we had to. We had to interrupt because of uh, coronavirus, and we've been finishing it remotely, um, which is which is an interesting process. It takes a little a little more time than I'm you know than I would really like, but but it's also kind of cool because it it's like I can really concentrate on one thing at a time, which is not normally my nature, and then I get it all together, and and um, I have managed to clone my studio pretty much identically here in my house in Toronto. So I, I can get it up to a point where it's, um, I can mix it here. All I do is send it back to Nashville, to Julian, who, who puts it through our hardware and, and prints it there. 
But um, so we're going to finish that. That's going to be done within, I would say, three to four weeks um, because it's not the only thing I'm doing right now. Right now, I am on a mission from God to get people to register and vote in the next election. Um, you know, my buddy Andy, who you know well, who you ski with and stuff, we are, we're, we're on a, you know, we are on a mission and this is taking quite a bit of time. Plus I've got my environmental stuff and in place of war and the Mr. Holland's Opus Foundation and Music Rising. They're all going at the same time. So what I, in my spare time, what I do is I'm finishing this record and, but, but Alice and I are already saying like, well, you know, why stop? We're having a good time. Let's keep going. So I think that'll happen. Uh, a couple of people have sent me notes saying, you know, would you like to talk about stuff? And I'm open to it, though it would be very difficult to do under current circumstances. So we'll see, you know, we'll see, Bob. We'll see. Okay, I think we've come to the end of the feeling we've known. And I think we'll leave a third <laughs> episode for the future. So, Bob, I thank you so much for going through your history and telling all these fantastic stories for my audience. Well, it's a, you know what? It's fun to tell because it gets, I get a chance to live it again, you know? Um, I sort of stay in the present, as you know. But, but to go back and relive that stuff, it's really, you know, it was great times, great fun. I feel unbelievably privileged to have had these opportunities and to experience these things. Well, this has been great, Bob. Till next time, this is Bob Lefsack. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it and travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel, it's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender.